Uh, greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. We're actually doing two this week because we missed one the week before. And uh, I just kind of felt like we should get our groove back on. And so today we're going to have my uh, a longtime friend, colleague, quasi-mentor, often scolding role model or, or uh, advisor, Charles Murray. And uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of different things. We actually recorded the interview a little earlier, so I'm recording this intro afterwards so I know what he says. And I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but we do cover the important issues from martinis to bullfighting and also the meaning of human existence. So it's, you know, it, it covers a few things. And then we talk, we, we talk for a while. And and then afterwards, me and Jack Butler and Michael Pratt are going to catch up on some other stuff. So this is going to be a bit of a long podcast, but you got the whole weekend to listen to it. And one of the things we want to work out is what my what the official closing sign off catchphrase for this podcast could be. And um, I have a bunch of contenders. I asked people on Twitter for suggestions, and it was like drinking out of a fire hose. So we're going to cover some of that. And um, Oh, and so it's weird because we're doing two podcasts this week, um, and technically Tripping was the advertiser for the one with Michael Rubin that we did the other day. Uh, Michael, uh, Jack, what did you think of the Michael Rubin interview? I was intimidated by the uh, surfeit of knowledge that he displayed. Yeah, no, um, he... Uh, He's an intense dude, but I, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was really interesting. I like Michael a lot, and that's sort of one of the theories I have about this podcast. You know, people say just do what you want to do. Um, normally, I don't like to do it like straight up interview style, but you know, because I think conversation is better. But Ruben is one of those guys who just knows so much about something, and I think people, even if they don't like, sort of like with Scott Lincecum when we did trade. Even if people aren't 100% interested in the topic, I just find it entertaining to listen to people who really know their stuff. And that's sort of what I was going for with Ruben because I couldn't, I couldn't compete with that guy. Yeah, he's like uh, how Indy describes his friend in Last Crusade. Like, knows every barman right, in right, Tunisia. Right. But then, ironically, they cut next to him that guy, I can't remember his name, just wandering through the square, speaking English, not knowing anyone. But Michael Rubin would not. No, that's right. Would not be that guy. Yeah, no, man. And he didn't even talk about it, but I'm pretty sure he lived outside the green zone in Baghdad during some of the rough stuff. Um, and uh, so anyway, I was glad to have him on. But anyway, the advertiser for that show was Tripping, uh, which uh, many listeners by now should know is one of my favorite advertisers. But I figured even though this is a bonus podcast, I will give them sort of a half bonus ad and just remind folks that what tripping does is it uh it aggregates all of these different vacation rental websites in one place and offers you a big discount up to 18% um on average savings when you use it and vacation rentals uh you know they're not right for every trip certainly a business trip you don't want to rent a house or an apartment someplace necessarily if you're just going someplace overnight um oh, there are some advantages to doing that too but if you're going on a family trip or if you're going to spend any time someplace, sometimes it's just a lot more comfortable and relaxing and you feel like more of a native and that you've actually lived somewhere. Um, when you get to stay somewhere, that's more like a home. 
and Tripping.com <coughs> is sort of like the uh, Trivago of um, of home rental uh, websites where it takes all of the different ones and uh, gives you the best information across all of these different sites because it turns out that some of these places um, actually charge more for the same houses on different websites precisely because people bring in an expectation that they're going to pay more when they go to some fancy pants luxury um, rental website versus some bargain place. And so the renters of these places will sometimes tra- charge differently for different websites. You can get a re- you can sneak past all of that by using tripping.com and more more importantly obviously is that uh you can help this podcast. So if you go to tripping.com forward slash dingo, that's our uh phrase that pays here at the remnant, it redounds well to us. So that's tripping.com forward slash dingo. And now uh, let's get back to uh, the podcast at hand, and we're going to talk to Charles Murray. And if you're interested in the uh, apocrypha and ephemera, um, stay tuned for after the interview as well. And I thought you I, called it various and sundry. Various and sundry. That's right. I'm just you know I'm, I, this is all an experiment, and I'm I'm still recovering from pneumonia and the plague, and uh, so I get confused. Um, I'm kind of like Uncle Leo from Seinfeld. Um, I get confused. Anyway, uh, Charles Murray's next, and uh, thanks for listening. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. All right, so today we have in the studio my friend, a colleague, sort of now former colleague, because he's officially an emeritus scholar at AEI, which is very helpful because it will help me when the time comes that I have to repudiate him. Uh, we have Charles Murray here. Hello, Charles. Nice uh, to have you here. Hello, John. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, so uh, we're going to begin on an important note. I'm holding in my hand the curmudgeon's guide to getting ahead, and I, I have not found the exact page, but I know for a fact there is a great deal in here about the importance of dressing well in professional settings. Absolutely. Okay. I had that in mind when I actually came in here wearing a jacket and tie and slacks. Oh, you look great. Thank you very much. And it didn't even have anything to do with the fact that I have to be on TV later today. Meanwhile, you look like you should be asking me for money uh, on the Whitehurst freeway. Let's be explicit. I haven't shaved. Uh-huh. Uh, my hair is sort of sticking out in all directions. I'm wearing khakis and a flannel shirt over a T-shirt. I'm emeritus. I see. I can do any damn thing I please with regard to dress. Okay. So um, after this, I hope you have a lovely time in your refrigerator box on K Street. <laughs> um, anyway, I just want to be like this is the first time I am I am officially more tastefully dressed than Charles Murray, and that's an important point. Second thing, I think it was on the first episode of this fully functional podcast. Um, I had just gotten back from a trip to Spain to see a bullfight. And you were on this trip. I was indeed, watching you blanch. And we kind of represented two ends of the spectrum on uh, reactions to all of this. You are, we're not going to dwell on this, but I, I figured this is the only time when you think about the other people who were on that trip, this is probably the last time I'll have someone who was on that trip that we can have this discussion. You are very pro-bullfighting. Well, I was fascinated by bullfighting when I was 13 and 14 years old because my family had taken me on a, and my sisters on a vacation to uh, Mexico. Didn't actually see a bullfight, 
but I started reading about it. So in eighth grade, I was reading through not just Hemingway, but all these other books about bullfighting. So, you know, I was psyched to do uh-huh. this just because I know a lot about it. You know, I wasn't... And that ended up being your first bullfight, right? I mean, Yeah, yeah the, okay. the one we were with together. And uh, we were sitting, if not side by side, real close. And I think that uh, I was sharing some of your reactions, mm-hmm. which is you have these large mammals... That are being killed. And you also have the bullfighters, which were kind of prancing around and and strutting. And I I thought they were not doing, uh, they weren't being appropriate for the solemnity of the occasion. However, did I I find it, can I understand why people get very passionate about this and and the intensity of it and the drama of it? Yeah, I I get it. Okay, no, that's all fair. I thought culturally it was sort of fascinating to see the high society of Seville, the all the guys, all the people dressed up, the people who, the interaction of the crowd, I thought was all interesting. But at the end of the day, I think you're being very, you're being very diplomatic when you talk about how prancy the bullfighters were. They seem to me like they should have been uh, in a risque Vegas show. I mean, there were there was uh, we're not allowed to say effeminate as if it's a bad thing about men anymore, but. <coughs> um, just, just though, let me point out something. Uh-huh. We were, for one of the very few times in our lives, watching somebody do something where they had a real halfway decent chance of being, or they have a decent chance of being seriously hurt no, that's and true. some chance of being killed. That's true. And that in itself is, uh, and that's why I wish they'd been more solemn because yeah. what they were doing takes courage, mm-hmm. <laughs> takes serious courage. Uh, by the way, I should add that... Uh, that that Joan and I got to know one of the most famous bullfighters recently retired in in Spain on right. that trip, and his brother was extremely seriously gored. I guess just a few weeks later. Yeah. That's right, and his dad was was killed, killed by was it, killed him. Yeah. So it is. It's not your usual Sunday afternoon in the park to go to. A no, no, I, I I agree with that. I also just you know because I am a I'm a sucker for charismatic megafauna. Um, I don't like to see big animals abused and tortured and they're essentially abused and tortured in this process yeah. this is not a, you know everyone wants to poo-poo slaughterhouses but you know slaughterhouses are pretty humane compared to what these bulls go through um, Had four great years before that though no they do they do but again i want to lobby once again for portuguese bullfighting where no bulls killed the only people get hurt are the humans and it ends with the bull being escorted by four hot bovine gals out of the stadium. Um, <laughs> that is a better life. So anyway, we'll we'll leave it there because I know, and I mean I know this podcast is huge in the bullfighting community, um, and we could talk about this for hours for them. But for other people, they probably don't care that much. So as I was saying, uh, Charles is officially. It's not quite retired, right? You're not retired. No, I'm still getting uh, a, a, a salary from AEI, uh-huh. not as big as it used to be, uh-huh. uh, which is a fu- great because I've I, – in fact, here's what's happened, Jonah. I have over the last two or three years seen my productivity go down. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a full-time scholar – There's a pill for that, but we can talk about well, that. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A full-time scholar at AEI should be putting a couple of major pieces in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times every year, if not more than that. They should be engaging in the blogs and they should – and you should definitely, you know, if you're invited to go on one of the talk shows, you should do it. I mean, that's just professional obligation. And I was increasingly kind of shoving all that aside. Right. And 
<clears throat> so what my emeritus status does is let me feel less guilty about doing that. Right. So I will still be active. I will certainly be any function at any function that AEI wants me to be at because I, my the depths of my gratitude to AEI are very great. But uh, I won't feel as guilty about uh, slacking off. Yeah, or from the looks of you, spending your time in your wonderful home with Kleenex boxes on your feet. Anyway, so... You're playing the role of Irving Crystal, by the way, in this little... I know, I know. Uh, because uh, in, in A Curmudgeon's Guide, I talk about once when I showed up at AEI's offices in basically the same outfit, except uh-huh. they were jeans instead of khakis and a flannel shirt. And I'm uh, getting in, going out to the lobby at our old office, and the elevator doors open and Irving Crystal steps out. And Irving and I were buddies as, in as much as I can be a buddy with, you know, the Titan mm-hmm. like Irving. Uh, but Irving looked at me and there was no merriment in his eyes when he said, well, what have we here? And walked <laughs> off with a, another word. And I didn't show up at AEI without a coat and tie uh, for the rest of Irving's life. So, look, I, 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 as we've discussed before, Irving Crystal was a huge influence on me. And when I first came to AEI as a little policy gnome in the early 1990s, I heard him speak, and it was like, in a very weird way, listening to my dad. I mean, and culturally, very similar, both sort of New York Jewish intellectual guys, right? But I I feel like it's probably too late to tell you this, but you should know that part of Irving's thing about dressing like that is Jewish men of that generation just didn't own jeans, It was a cultural thing. My dad did not have a pair of jeans the entire time I knew him. From he always wore basically gray flannel slacks and a dress shirt. And his idea of really cutting loose was when he sat on the couch, he would loosen his suspenders. And his idea of vacation was moving to the other side of the couch to read a different book. And Irving had a lot of that in that ballpark. Yeah. So. One of the things you talked about, which I, I, I promised you I wouldn't get too wonky and weedy in all of this, but one of the things I, I'm sort of fascinated by is this uh, thing that you mentioned the other night in your lecture here at AI, which listeners can go find on the AI website, I believe, yep. and, and listen to. It was great. About the, the, the what is it called, the verification movement? Or not verification, uh, uh, my... Replication. Replication movement in social science, right? And that they're finding just an enormous number of findings. Well, of course, they, they're finding. Look, the now, by the way, I've got to reveal my prejudices here. I think 90% of the experiments in social psychology are coming up with a I guess I, I guess on a podcast you can say almost any word you want right you can if you really let the expletives fly I, I, then we have to do a little warning on the website saying mature audiences or something can I say they're bullshit yeah sure okay that's 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 what I wanted to say you get 30 sophomores at the college where you're a professor of psychology and you have this extremely artificial situation you set up and from that you draw inferences about human behavior in all sorts of important dimensions, and of course it doesn't replicate because it's a very weak, it was just weak, it's just a weak form of acquiring knowledge about these things. So 
Uh, the fact that they can't replicate them doesn't surprise me. What I wish they, the conclusion they would draw from this is not, oh, we've got to go out and see if we can replicate this stuff. I wish that they would simply uh, uh, realize what an artificial, limited methodology the social ex- uh, science experiment is. Okay, so I have... Social psychology experiment. I, I have several questions um, or thoughts. One of my big peeves, I used to write about this a lot, I wrote about it a bit in my last book, is the effort to extrapolate from some of these social science experiments sweeping generalizations about different political ideologies. And in the last 10 years, there's been, there was a terrible book called The Republican Brain, mm-hmm. which um, purports to say that that being a Republican or conservative, you know, this is all, my peeve, I got interested in this when I first worked on liberal fascism, going back to Theodore Adorno and the authoritarian personality, which the more I looked into that, the more ridiculous it seemed. Um, the Just the way he uh, and the other Frankfurt School guys rigged the data to get the conclusions that they wanted, and their their definition of authoritarianism excluded being a communist. So communists weren't <laughs> weren't authoritarians, but only fascists were, and traditionalists were, and you know, and there's this stuff in in some of the stuff that Adorno and Hockheimer and some of these other Frankfurt School guys wrote about the inherent fascism of American technology, because we have to slam doors shut. That signifies how fascism is embedded in the material circumstances of the society and <coughs> all of this nonsense. And there's a great tradition in, in liberal social science. I think his name was, uh, was it Herbert McCloskey. Anyway, there were a bunch of these guys who've been doing this stuff for years, trying to basically psychologize conservatism into an irritable mental gesture, a form of psychosis, uh, paranoia, you know, the... Uh, Hofstetter borrowed a lot of this stuff from Adorno to do the paranoid style in American politics, which is almost always about conservatives. And I'm not saying that conservatives can't be paranoid, but liberals can too. So that's where I'm coming from on this. And so the question I have, though, is with all the stuff that you look at in terms of neuroscience and and uh, heritability and all the rest, how much do you think political ideology can be explained by hardwiring? Hmm. Well, I think probably the usual estimates of the heritability of political ideology, and I don't want to be quoted on this, but in my mind I remember, you know, 0.3, 0.4, the correlations, which means it explains, you know, 20% of the variance uh, at most. So is there a heritable component? Yeah, there is. It's not huge. Mm. I'm, I'm... I'm actually encouraged by some of the more recent attempts to characterize the psychology of conservatism and so forth because actually some of the social scientists are starting to come up with less flagrantly biased adjectives. Mm -hmm. So I have seen some recent studies which point out that loyalty Mm -hmm. and integrity seem to be a lot more important to conservatives than they do to liberals. And you also have a you know, a variety of negative adjectives as well. There might be some improvement in it. I guess my... So do you think a sense of loyalty is heritable? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To some extent. Not yeah, yeah. See, with here's the thing about personality. And, and part of loyalty is partly personality. Mm-hmm. 
The strange thing about personality is that the shared environment we were talking about the other night, which, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, refers to socioeconomic status and parenting style and all the rest of that, has virtually zero to do with uh, personality. And at first this sounds unlikely until if you're a parent and you've got a couple of kids or if you're a sibling and you've got siblings, just look at the personalities of three or four siblings in a family. They're wildly different, mm. uh, even though they've been growing up with exactly the same parents. So I, I have a – because I don't like this idea – I have I problems know. with it. Me, me either. Yeah, no, I know. And so, um, uh, but I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I just don't like it. So I have questions. I agree with you. You know, my, the personality differences between my brother and I were strong. Um, I look at my wife's family. She's one of nine. There's a real gamut or spectrum of, of, of different personalities. And they're all, I mean, there, there is some time differences. You know, like there's literally no pictures of my wife as a baby because... You know, when you have your first kid, you, you, got... you take all these pictures, right? And by the time you're on your sixth or seventh, it's like, who needs another baby picture? You know, <laughs> um, it's uh, it's sort of like that Ray Romano joke about having identical twins. The great thing is you save so much money on baby pictures. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> um, at the same time, it's sort of like in America, right? We have a lot of diverse uh, cultures and people and all the rest. But you can take almost a scattershot random group of Americans and send them to France. And French people will say, well, yeah, they all have a lot in common. They're all Americans. Uh. I look at people, the Gavoras, my wife's family, they came out of a shared environment, lots of different personalities. But I can sit back and look at them and say, there's a lot of commonality too, right? And so isn't there some problem with the way that you frame this? Point, point, point well taken. Uh, if, if you're talking about can a people have a, uh, a national characteristic, which clearly cannot be ethnically determined in the case of the United States because right. we're all over the lot, yeah, it can. And the, and, and the characteristics of America, I think, as they used to be seen uh, by Europeans was we were very open. Right. We would talk about intimate things that they'd never talk about on right. first acquaintance. A little bit naive, optimistic, uh, very friendly. And I'm willing to say, yeah, the, those, those are things which are culturally transmitted and they, they, can, they can affect how a people behave. But, but my point is, though, is that the same holds for families, that there are a microcosm and there are similarities among siblings – that um, are obvious to people who aren't one of the siblings. Um, even though you can see the differences in the personalities, there is a common language, a common way of thinking about some problems. You know, my brother and I had a very similar sense of humor, even though we were very different people. And so I'm, I, I'm, I'm pushing back because I don't like the idea that shared environment means very, very little. I'm, or nothing, as you put it. Um, I, I'm just wondering whether... It's one of these things that creates a a milieu that is sh yeah, that is shared. The question is whether a family milieu is as strong as the kind of national milieu that produces national characteristics. Because there you're talking about socializing influences that not only come from the parents and their particular parenting style and their particular values. You're talking about socialization 
Mm 24-7 in terms of all of the influences go into creating this kind of national commonality. So I guess that uh, given a perfectly rational, persuasive, qualitative argument like you just did, I can come back and say, yeah, but Jonah, if you give me biological siblings and adopted siblings and you give them a variety of tests about personality, the correlation between the two is going to be no higher than any random two people uh, uh, drawn from the streets. And and that is replicated. <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> had, that's had large samples. But I think, I think actually I'm kind of satisfied with my answer. Parents do have a huge influence, but uh, so do peer groups, so mm-hmm. do a variety of other things. But if you've got kind of a national milieu, people bathe in that uh, all their lives. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. I just... People bathe in their family milieu pretty well for the first 10, 12 years in life, you know, uh, in ways that I'm going to cling to my romantic notion that they matter. Now listen, I just told a story the other night, which I won't repeat now, but about an experience when I was 18 years old with my mother where she reacted very strongly, critically of me, uh, appropriately. And I realized, gee, at the age of 18, you can still feel like... Your personality has been, or your values yeah. have been, deeply affected by environment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because of my quasi-Jewish upbringing. Um, Was well, you know, my mom, no, my mom no. wasn't Jewish, and yeah, that's right. Uh, but I was raised Jewish. I went to Jewish day school. I my peers were mostly Jewish, so I mean, I fairly steep. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, I often refer to myself as a pseudo-intellectual demi-Jew from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It just seems to me that guilt has an enormous amount of power in character formation and even personality formation. And parents play an enormous... And not just Jewish parents. I mean, I've known some Catholic parents who are really good at it, too. Well, you've named the two groups in the world that are best at it. Yeah, yeah. These are the pros. Well, you know... Asians, there's some Asian cultures that seem pretty good. You're betraying your ancestor. I mean, I would like to see a guilt Olympics and see, you know, what shame. everyone comes up with. Uh, the Asian, the Asian is much more shame. Than shame, fair enough. Okay, and it just seems to me that if you grow, if parents raise you in an environment where guilt and shame are major markers in your life, you will come out of it different than if you grow up in some hippie commune. And I'll buy that. Yeah. So I have another question, which I've been wanting to ask you about for a long time. Jonathan Haidt, he writes about this. Arthur Brooks, um, our fearless leader, has talked about this. This weird thing, which I mean, Western, educated, individualist, whatever it stands for, right? There's this thing in the social science literature that comes up that turns out that Western affluent people, their brains seem to be a little different in that... If you ask Asians to look at a painting of a school of fish, and there's one different color, I'm, I'm sort of bastardizing the example, but there's one fish that sort of stands out. Westerners, Americans tend to focus on the individual fish in the school, while the Asians tend to see the collective more, the communal thing more. And I've heard, I think Paul Bloom from Yale talk about this. There's a theory that it has to do with cultures that are. Uh, based on wheat versus rice, that if you it's much more communal farming when you grow up one way, Confucian versus Protestant or whatever. Anyway, how much? It seems to me that this is sort of a a more interesting problem of the social science thing 
than using hungover college students, is using actually Americans who are saturated in a kind of individualism that may not hold in other cultures. Am I making any sense? Well, first point is that I think the likelihood of important differences in kinds of neurocognitive functioning between Asians and uh, Europeans is, it's just got to be. And I'll tell you why I say that. You know, the thing about there's elevated visual spatial skills in Asians. Asians test higher than Europeans on visual spatial arrangements. All right. That's quite consistent. It happens not only with Chinese born in China. It happens to Chinese born in Singapore. It happens to Chinese born, uh, adopted at birth by by uh, Kansans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just universal. Now think about European gardens, formal gardens versus Japanese formal gardens. Mm-hmm. The one linear, you know, the French gardens outside Versailles, linear, very logical, right. if-then kind of thing, and the Japanese rock gardens, which are just these exquisite but much more nuanced visual-spatial yeah. uh, things. Think of the game of Go, uh, the the Asian game of Go versus chess. Chess, if then, if then, mm-hmm. you figure out all the permutations. Go, much more intellectually intuitive, and it also requires <laughs> this very, very uh, subtle visual-spatial skills. And finally... And I rest my case after that. What other than a a group that has very high visual spatial skills would ever create a written language like Japanese or Chinese? Right, right, right. I mean, come on. Yeah. You've got to have an IQ of 150 from my point of view. I mean, I'm exaggerating to learn how to read Chinese and yeah. all the Chinese can do it without batting an eye. So, so suppose that it were true, by the way, this thing about – Individualists see the one fish and mm. the other. I'm saying, was that a bunch of sophomores that they used? Yeah, to? I don't know. I don't uh, know. But... So I'd like to see that replicated as well. But it's not inconceivable. Mm-hmm. It's not inconceivable that you have visually, spatially uh, different ways of uh, thinking about things. By the way, do you want to hear the weirdest example of a well-documented visual-spatial difference? You don't. Yes. You don't insist on going. Uh, you know, on a consistent uh, conversation. No, this is the, 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 I, this podcast is an utterly organic. Okay, thing. here I we go. No prep. So. I just came across this a couple of weeks ago in, in doing research for the current book. This is a very consistent male-female difference in visual-spatial skills, okay? It is this. The test consists of, it's a question. So you are shown a picture of a, of a glass or a line drawing of a glass with water in it, and so the, the, the glass is sitting on a flat surface, and so the, the, uh, the water is flat too. The question is, when you, when you then tilt the glass, what is going to be the position of the water in the glass? Hmm. And I don't know about you, but I say, well, it'll still be horizontal. Right, because right. Do you realize there is a consistent, substantial male-female difference in the ability to answer that question. Really? And by the way, to the to the uh, uh, female members of the audience, uh, I assure you, I got all sorts of other examples of things where, where women are better than men in yeah. terms of skills. But uh, in fact, actually, I'd like to talk about one of those too in okay. a second. But this is, I'm saying, how can that be? Yeah. Um, but it is. Huh. Actually, I'll go, now I'll go to the example of one where there is a test 
because women have, they now have a good word for it in the technical literature. Women are better at mind reading. Mm-hmm. You know, that sometimes other authors have used empathizing and so forth. Emotional and, intelligence. Yeah, and, 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 and women just all sort of roll their eyes and say, oh, yeah, you want us to be the touchy-feely ones mm-hmm. that are nurturing and all that. Well, I think mind reading is a better word for it because it really is being able to figure out what another person is thinking. There is a test in which you are shown about 30 different pictures, and all you see is the eyes. Mm-hmm. So the photograph just puts the eyes and the area around the eyes. And you're, you're given four alternatives to characterize what that person is feeling. Mm-hmm. Disgust, amusement, flirtatious. Yeah, they have. So I took this test. And I tried hard. Yeah. I stared at those eyes and so forth. And after having tried hard and, ha- and being a guy, I got a good IQ, okay. I got exactly the male mean, mm-hmm. which is lower than the female. Yeah. And I tried as hard as I could. Yeah. And women just look at those, and they can figure out what's going on yeah. when I can't. I just find all this stuff really interesting. No, that's fascinating. I mean, we need to tread lightly here, but... Um... Yeah, that's, you know, actually, that's one of the reasons I went ahead and gave those examples, because uh-huh. I would like the people who listen to this say, you know what? The reaction to talking about differences between men and women and Asians and Europeans or whatever, the reaction ought to be, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Not, not to be scared of it. Right. And, you know, we should have the caveat that as a, as a statistical distribution of qualities, Absolutely. it's all very, very interesting. Lots of overlap. But it doesn't, give, it doesn't empower you to make any sincere judgment about any single individual of any background. That, that sort of is the routine. But it's, it's needed, unfortunately, right. uh, to say to people, we're talking about differences in means, lots of overlap, lots of people who have characteristics of the, of the other group. The other, yeah. However, all of this makes me think that the, one of the great lacuna in uh, American education is not teaching everybody about statistical distributions. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. What a hard time people have distinguishing between a difference in means and what how the distributions overlap. Right. So I think it's all witchcraft, just to be honest. But um, you're not a quantitative guy. I am not. I do think it's though it's it's interesting. I, I, have you followed? You know, this guy from Google is suing. Yes. And did you read some of the allegations in the suit? I just saw little bits of it on Twitter. Wow. But. Uh, I I I find this this you know ever since I'm not a huge uh, Larry Summers fan but I always thought what happened to him was so grotesque you know he offered he was asked to speak on a subject he offered three or four different plausible explanations he was asked to be speculative right and he was asked to be speculative in a room full of PhD tenured academics and it was a bait and switch thing, and they they waited for him to stick his neck out, and then they theatrically went to their fainting couches and said, you know, sexist and all the rest. And by the way, when you say fainting couches, one of them who is, for heaven's sakes, a professor at MIT in one of the hard sciences, a woman, said that she her heart was racing and she almost blacked out. I yeah. mean, it's it's like a Victorian no, uh, episode, and it's it's if. If you had written it as fiction, you would be called a sexist for saying that a woman would have that reaction, yeah. right? And at the same time, I, I, I do kind of find it fascinating, the claim 
uh, the disparate impact claims that people were making about places like Google. And I have no particular brief for Google. I got plenty of problems with places like Google. But the idea that women who are overrepresented in a whole bunch of scientific fields, right, medicine increasingly, yeah. veterinary science hugely, yep. the idea that in those fields the sexist, were com- the sexist men were completely routed, but sexist men managed to build up their fortifications in engineering <laughs> and yeah. and keep the women out strikes me as so ridiculous on its face and yet that is essentially the argument that is that is made right uh you know megan mccardle uh, yeah, sure. uh, so, uh megan who i just met in person one time but i admire her enormously she's very very gifted uh, I, my understanding is in math and so forth yeah and uh far more than i am oh yeah. far more than i am and but she had a wonderful column about her, where she was engaged, I think, in programming with some other guys. And uh, so she comes in after the weekend and is talking to one of her colleagues and asks, uh, how, how, what did he do this weekend? And he basically spent 36 hours or something on some very abstruse programming mm-hmm. thing. And she just said to herself, there's no way I'm doing that. And her point was was quite simple. And she wasn't trying to generalize it to all women or mm-hmm. all men. But she's saying, you know what? There can be temperamental differences here, which yeah. have nothing to do with your ability. Yeah. Uh, in this regard, one of the one of the most useful studies we have is uh, by uh, a woman named Camilla Benbow and a guy named uh, David Lubinsky down at Vanderbilt, where they have these... Uh, reports on these extremely mathematically gifted boys and girls mm-hmm. who have now been followed for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And these, you're talking the top 1% yeah. of uh, people in math ability, women just, you know, the same. So the whole issue of are they good at math is just irrelevant. Right. They're both equally good at it. And they document the very different life choices they've made. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and the women who – the women uh, are less eager to spend 80 hours a week working than the guys are. The, the, the women have a more balanced view of life in many in many respects. So they, they chose to take some of these courses, which will uh, – by courses, life courses, which people condescend to or they say, oh, well, you are – you're trying to keep women down by telling these stories, Murray. Why are you, why are you insisting on this? I'm saying, you know what? If you say to these incredibly gifted women who grew up in a feminist era when they were, uh, you know, gender-neutral toys and all the rest, and you try to say now that when they talk about their life choices, which they're quite satisfied with, that they're deluded, right. you got a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> these women are smarter than you are. Right. <laughs> they're probably more mature than you are. They thought about this stuff. Right. Let's start just, you know, cooling it in terms yeah. of – of uh, of calling out sexist and so forth when we talk about male female differences. Yeah, no, it's there's there's a burning desire to accuse anybody who goes a different way of false consciousness. You know, um, tell me about it. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's funny. So my wife, the fair Jessica, who you know, um, she wrote uh, the first and at this point maybe still only. Uh, I can't remember if Christina Huff Summers has actually written a book on Title IX, but my wife wrote the first sort of expose of where Title IX was going. And 
uh, and she was utterly vilified for it. She predicted that it was going to go into that it was going to have creep into the sciences, and every oh that's ridiculous. And of course, that's exactly where what's happened. It's creeped into it's it's it's, it's like a bad lab experiment. It's leapt out of sports and it's crept into all of higher education in all sorts of ways. But you know, one of the points that she used to get just beaten up for was that, and she, and my wife was a huge high school basketball player. It was a passion of hers. She actually played against Sarah Palin um, back in the day. And um, <coughs> um, and one of the problems is is that it's it's whether it's wiring or cultural or whatever, is that women like women like sports. They may not like it as much as men, but for competitive reasons. Uh, but there was just it was just a fact that that female athletes didn't want to sit on the bench for an entire season. They had better things to do. if they weren't really good at it and going to get a lot of playing time. They didn't want to sit on a bench. And uh, meanwhile, men, I think I'm I would argue because of the sort of natural inclination to sort of hunter warrior mindset. You know, they were willing to wait all season for five minutes of playing time yeah. and. I don't know that that's a, you know, I don't think that's sexist, but I don't know that it's a, the wrong decision. I mean, maybe you do have better things to do with your time than to sit on a bench for an entire season of high school and go to practices and never get to play if you're not that good. Maybe you should be doing some other sport or some other thing with your time. One of the things that uh, with this highly talented group uh, that I talked about earlier has been followed for 40 years is that the guys who were so super talented in math oftentimes weren't all that good in verbal skills. Yeah. But the girls who were so talented in math, just as talented as the guys were, more more often also had very high verbal skills. So you ended up with uh, fewer women going into STEM than men in this very talented mathematical group. The reason, the women will say to you, is... I had a choice. They had more options, right? Yeah, I could, I could go in, in. Uh, I could be an attorney. I could do this. Right. A lot of these guys, of course, they were in STEM. Yeah, that's what they're good at, and they weren't particularly good at anything else. Uh, by the way, you know, before we, we probably should get off the. Yeah, we the, will. And the reason is because we are two guys. Yeah. And what would be fun sometime if you ever decide to expand your things? Suppose we had Catherine and Jessica sitting here too. Yeah. And the four of us could could bat around. Some of these things, because I want to tell our our uh, our audience that both of us married up. We did <laughs> in terms of intellectually, both of us married up. If, 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 I always tell young men, if you don't marry up, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, and uh, I have, I would love to have Catherine on. I have a, a long-standing invitation to my wife to come on here, uh, and she's so far refused. But we'll see. Um, I'm also, I've also been absolutely terrible about having women guests on the show and on this podcast and we're going to remedy that starting next week at least that's the plan but it's just worked out that way put put megan mccardle high on your list. oh i would love to have megan i'm a big fan of megan's i just you know what i don't want to do is have women on because i must have a woman on kind of thing and i just sort of fell over backwards into this podcast to begin with all right so here's a really important question which i've asked um only people on who have been on this podcast, who, whose expertise in these matters, I think, is sufficient that I care about their opinion. So I had, did not, for example, ask Yuval Levin this question. Is there any such thing as a vodka martini? Of course not. Uh, <laughs> come on. <laughs> there is, yeah, there's vodka with a little vermouth in it. Right. A martini, 
Well, it's okay with me if people want to call it a vodka martini. Uh-huh. Uh, I just simply say that if you order a martini, you have ordered something with gin in it. That's uh, right. There should not be the follow-up question: vodka or gin? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Okay. Because I, I, so I will give you. I did ask um, Andy Ferguson about this, who I think you will concede has a certain level of expertise in such matters. <laughs> but yeah, what did he say? Oh, he agreed. Okay. He agreed, and. I remember, so, you know, I started, as you recall, I started at AEI in the early 1990s, and um, I was a big fan of Judge Bork, and Judge Bork had very strong opinions about this. Um, He argued that um, you should not have any garnish in a martini because that was salad. Yes. Now, was it both olives and a twist that he was against, or was it olives in particular that he thought thought were? I salad? seem to recall. I mean, we ran a piece, an important piece, in National Review, oh, very on, by him piece. about the Bork Martini. Well, <coughs> you know, I was uh, I was here during the Bork years as well, and actually, Bob Bork and I did not agree on a whole lot. Uh, me being a libertarian and him not being a libertarian. Although a younger, when he was doing antitrust stuff at Yale, you guys probably would have seen more eye to eye. But on one topic, he and I were as brothers, and that is our views on martinis. Yeah. And we we had very serious and and, uh, intense discussions about that, but we essentially entirely agreed. Yeah. Well, well, that's important. You know, there is, I believe, the, a, 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 Vodka and vermouth chilled drink, I believe, is officially a kangaroo, historically. Oh, I like that idea. But if you go into Look a how bar, silly you sound ordering a kangaroo. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and I think Ferguson brought up some other name for it. Um, now, now, Bond did drink vodka martinis, James Bond. He, well, he did more damage to the culture. I mean, that, that yeah, damn hippie changed standards um, in, an, in an egregious way. And you don't... Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, there are people who say you shouldn't shake. I like shaking martinis. I I'm no, I no, I think that because you need. To I don't want to. I, again, I'm getting very technical here. Uh-huh. But 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 when you shake it first, I think it imparts a a sharper cold. I think it gets it colder, and also this cloudiness that you get when you pour the drink. I think signifies an extra something that you don't get with stirred. So I spend a lot of time thinking about this. I do too. And I've, all of my conclusions on this are right and the others are wrong. So I want to share with you a technique that I learned, that I, I invented. If you have a good martini glass, um, it can't be too thin, you know. It can't be like that cheap champagne glass. If you have a good sturdy martini glass, put a little distilled water in the bottom of it and then put it in the freezer. Mm. And so... That little diamond of ice stays on the bottom, doesn't float up um, unless you are not drinking it quickly enough, um, and it keeps your martini chilled much, much longer. That's a fine idea. It's worth. Of course, you could also just put the gin in the freezer. You can do that. You can do uh, that. I, I have. <laughs> What's your now, preferred gin? Hmm? I I uh, switch back and forth between Tanqueray is the one I have at home. Mm-hmm. I like the citrusy aspects of Tanqueray. And then when I'm uh, ordering in a restaurant, I oftentimes get Bombay Sapphire. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, just for the heck of it, I get uh, a Hendrix. I guess that I'm old enough now and my children are old enough now that I won't get pulled in on child abuse charges. But I have two older daughters, Nerissa and Sarah. And <laughs> Nerissa knew how to prepare my 
martini with gin that had not been put in the freezer, and Ah. Sarah was trained to make a martini where the gin had been put in the freezer. (laughs) And this sounds terrible, but, you know, they still love me. uh, Oh, no. I mean, so I grew up in New York City in the 1970s, and back when the Upper West Side Upper West Side of Manhattan was people forget the set the the setting for the Death Wish movies, and um, was the scene for Panic in Needle Park and and other. So it was not exactly the lavish, gentrified neighborhood it is today. And my mom, when I was about five or six, started sending me downstairs to go buy her cigarettes for her. And I remember once. I could, you know, she she smoked larks, and uh, I once, you know, had to peer up over the counter at the head shop, right, like a kid out of a Norman Rockwell painting, and say, you know, a carton of larks, please, and you know, which was a lot of money even back then for a six-year-old kid to have, and she was like, I can't, this in, nice Asian lady, you know, Indian or Pakistani lady was like, I can't sell you cigarettes. I was like, oh, okay, and I went back upstairs. My mom comes downstairs in her bathrobe and chews out this poor woman saying, how dare you not sell my son cigarettes? <laughs> and uh, ever since then, you know, he's buying them for me. He doesn't smoke them. He should sell them cigarettes. And so I have to say one of the things I'm is makes me sad is that I never got a chance to know your parents. They sound they sound like pieces of work in the best way yeah they my mom's still with us you would have liked my dad a lot my dad was very irving crystal like and less outgoing a drier sense of humor but may i tell you something Catherine said just yesterday sure after you sent me a very nice email she said you know actually for a kid from iowa and a kid from the upper west side of new york you two are an awful lot alike (laughs) There are similarities. There are similarities. I think we would both, in our own defenses, cite some differences. There but differences. <laughs> there, there are differences. Uh, our, our minds don't work in entirely different ways, you know? No, that's true. Although you're much better at the math witchcraft stuff yeah, than that's, I am. Yeah, that's trivial. So we have managed not to talk about Donald Trump or politics at all in this, and I'm, I'm tempted to leave it that way. But as you mentioned in your 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 a uh, big speech the other night. Without using the word Trump. Without using the word Trump, but you made reference to the name of this podcast, which is The Remnant. Mm-hmm. I feel like we should talk a little, sure. indulge our, our curmudgeonliness a little bit. I don't know who is less sanguine about the future but the, between the two of us, but why don't you make the case that you made the other night for optimism, and then I'll defer. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> the the case for optimism is... is uh strategic as opposed to tactical, that which is to say that, you know, Steve Pinker uh, talks about things are really getting better, mm-hmm. and other people have made the same point in all sorts of ways, including 2017. Right. You can say things are getting better, and certainly in the much longer term, way better. Reductions in poverty, reductions in disease, increases in good things, and so forth and so on. Well, that's going to go on uh, unless we have economic policy of Soviet stupidity. Right. Okay. And so over the next couple of centuries, we're going to see incredible increases in uh, just plain old wealth, and we're also going to see incredible improvements in technology and so forth. And I think most of those changes in technology are going to be empowering. Now, mind you, 
<clears throat> if you talk about a couple hundred years, you're th- skipping over things like the possibility of the singularity, mm-hmm. where the machines get smarter than we are and all that. But let's say that that hasn't happened. Already, <coughs> already, just think of all the ways in which centralized institutions have been getting less important. A library. I write these books requiring incredibly large databases, incredibly large access to uh, uh, technical literature. I sit out there in Burkittsville, Maryland, whereas when I did Losing Ground back in the early 1980s, I lived in the Library of Congress basically mm. for 10 months. But you can, you can extrapolate that to all sorts of other kinds of centralized institutions even now. And so a couple hundred years from now, it is inconceivable to me that people will be saying, gee, really, what we need as a government is thousands and thousands of regulations being enforced by these huge bureaucracies. I can't just – it won't go that way. That's strategic. Mm-hmm. Tactically, okay, I've made my case for optimism. Okay. My response to this is, is not the one that I thought I was going to have when I asked you to do this. Um, I, you know, one of the one, one of the overarching themes of your life's work, um, I think, can be boiled down to the idea um, that we're making life too complicated for people, right? And um, as I always like to tell college students, complexity is a subsidy. And oh, I like that. Yeah, when you when you make something really complex, you are rewarding the people who have either the Cognitive, social, capital, you know, uh, economic capital ab- abilities to navigate around a complex hurdle, right? And so you were rewarding people, certain people, certain new class types when you make things complicated. And so, like, in your example where you say central institutions, well, the library is not a bad Central institution, right? It is actually one of oh, that's the what, yeah, one of the islands, yeah, good ones. One of the great islands of civil society, right? Mm-hmm. And and it plays a really important role, particularly for the people who don't have your cognitive ability and who actually need help to navigate through life. And what I wor- one of the things I worry about, and maybe it's because I've been working on this crazy book, is that. The centrifugal forces of of identity politics, of new technologies, of computers, of virtual of virtual communities rather than real communities, is creaming off. You know, it's separating off the cream of people who have either the cognitive or the social or the economic capital that lets them function in life, and in the process, it's hollowing out a lot of the institutions of civil society. And so the forces that you're talking about in the long run, I mean, I, I don't want to get into H.G. Wells, Morlocks, and Eloy kind of prophecies, but you can see how, you know, the, the cognitive, as you've been writing for years, the cognitive elite is self-sorting. And so a lot of the things that you're talking about, things getting better, it's always going to be good for people with high IQs and good work ethics and all the rest. I worry more and more that the institutions that are set up to help everybody, but particularly the people who need them at the lower ends of the distribution and those things, are are being left with poor substitutes for real civil society. I actually think you're, you're uh, predominantly right there. 
I mean, you picked on the one, the one centralized institution, the library, which is really terrific. Right. Uh, the, there are lots of others like the uh, welfare bureaucracy sure, uh, sure. downtown, which is not. And but but the essential statement that we are making it. Well, let me back up a minute. When we talk about community and community being important for people, which I do and you do and so forth, uh, for people like us, it can be a it can be a very far flung community. So you're part of my community. We live sixty miles apart from each other, but right. you're still very much part of my community, and that's just true generally of the new upper class. Their friends and and colleagues can be all over the world. The geographic community is way more important to mm-hmm. other to other people, and and the a lot of the technology that's being developed undercuts that, hollows that out. But you know what? Most of all, hollows it out. I think is the removal of functions from the community, mm-hmm. so that now I'm going to channel my my purer libertarian self. Uh, but if the functions of taking care of human needs were still left in the community, guess what? When those things are there, people tend to do those kinds of mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. But when they can be exported, when uh, the, uh, the the guy who's uh, uh, running out of money because he's drinking up his, his money, if you can send him downtown to uh, be taken care of by a central institution, it's human nature to sort of get that off your hands. So another great theme of of my work ever since In Pursuit has been that if you want vital communities, you have to give them something to do, Mm -hmm. and it's the function of the welfare state to take the trouble out of those things and export those things. That's not technological. That's a political decision. And I would – you know, you've raised the – you've raised the ultimate question. Is it true or is it not true that human beings' satisfactions really do reside in the things that you and I think are important, you know, family and community and Mm -hmm. vocation and so forth? If it's really true that human beings have a deep need, a psychological hardwired need to have intimate relations with other people, to also have a sense of responsibility for for, uh, doing important things with their lives, then you've got a natural force which will tend to respond to policies that give community something to do, that give families something important to do, that that withdraw uh, outside agencies from all this. So in other words, I'm saying we have the option of not hollowing out these things. We aren't driven ineluctably to a situation where they're hollowed out. Problem is that the dominant political ideology wants to do things that will hollow it out. I think that's right, and I think that the uh, the material culture that we are creating, which is, you know, at the end of liberal fascism, I make this point, which I'm since revisiting a little, but that we were never really in the danger of the Orwellian 1984 kind of authoritarianism, you know, the jackboot stomping on a human face. It just wasn't in American DNA, and, and I'm less convinced of that these days than I was 10 years ago, but that's a topic for another day. What I did say was I thought that the greater threat was from the Huxleyan vision of dystopia, where, you know, 10th graders have for the last 50 years been trying to answer the question, if everyone's so happy, what's wrong with a brave new world, right? And the SOMA model of having people, having 
prepackaged joy delivered to you is very much enmeshed in the material culture that we are creating. You know, Uber for this and Uber for that and Amazon on demand and I want drones and driverless cars and all of these things. You and know, virtual reality is going to be crazy. Yeah, exactly. Like that. That's what I was thinking of. Robert Nozick uh, has in Anarchy State and Utopia a wonderful thought experiment where he says, well, suppose you have a I can't remember how the original experiment went versus my version of it that I put in, in pursuit. But anyway, you, suppose you had virtual reality that was so good that once you were plugged in, you would have no sense of this being inferior mm-hmm. to lived reality. Uh, would you plug yourself into that? And at the time I wrote In Pursuit, you're talking 1988 now, uh, I said, well, how about let's put it this way. Would you plug your child into this at the age of two, and and I said, I, I assume your answer is a horrified no. Mm-hmm. And the reason is a horrified no is that a human life has a meaning and a dignity and a weight that 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 has to be respected. And now we are living in a time when that, that thought experiment is getting closer and closer to being realized. Mm-hmm. And you compare... You know, Donkey Kong to what we have now in yeah. terms of virtual uh, reality games. Okay, extrapolate that out 20 years. Right. You're talking Nozick's experience machine. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people are going to say, that sounds good to me. They want to be a knight in Game of Thrones. And if they can plug themselves into a machine that lets them do that, I can see them doing that. Well, this, uh, I mean, we don't need to extend this <laughs> range of big topics we're talking about. That brings up, why is it that you wouldn't plug yourself into the experience machine if the experience machine's got that good? Mm -hmm. You know, I think the answer to that is because I have an immortal soul. Right. And uh, so what if the continuing secularization of Western Europe goes on and and continues in the United States? Okay, forget the long-term optimism. Uh, (laughs) Well, (coughs) I mean... I'm fine with going to the immortal soul, but there's a there's a more human answer I think that gets at your point about healthy communities, which is you wouldn't do it if there were people who needed you. Excellent point, right? And I think there are an enormous number of people, and our economy and our material culture is developing in such a way there are an enormous number of people who don't feel like anybody needs them. And why wouldn't you? If 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 you could either be in the trailer when nobody needs you and you're you're a burden to your friends and family and you or you don't have friends, or you can go into the experience machine and live Tolkien-esque adventures and be a hero, you can see a lot of people voluntarily getting into their pods and 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 it's, it goes back to your point about uh, when life is simpler, a lot of these things never come up, so that. If you have a world in which uh, you better get married, whether you're a man or a woman, right? Uh, because uh, because you need all the help you can get in surviving and making a life for yourself, and you better be embedded in a community uh, to be safe from the predators beyond the gates. All of these things never come up, and you spend your life. Uh, if you're the guy, you're spending your life putting a roof over the head and and food in the table for people, and that's important work. If you're the woman, you are raising children and uh, and maintaining the house and the community and all that, that's important work. So we never, in those kinds of circumstances, have a problem 
whether you have an IQ of 150 or an IQ of 90, you you can say genuinely to yourself, I'm spending my life doing important stuff. Mm-hmm. When all of that becomes optional, then you say to yourself, what difference does it make if I quit this rotten job I've got, if you're the guy? Right. You know, my wife will be, you know, well, she's not your wife anymore. She's the woman you're cohabiting with, so mm-hmm. you don't have any internal commitments there. It's the old story that people in a in a society like we have now do things when they're 20 years old and 23 years old and 18 years old, which are a lot more fun than getting married and taking on responsibilities. In the short term, they're much more fun. And guess what? If they aren't careful, they've cut themselves off from the deep sources of satisfaction that they can carry with them. And here's where the new upper class has done a lot better job than than the working class. Mm-hmm. All right, so I've succeeded in, in making this a bitter and pessimistic uh, end exercise, which was my... Well, we're both completely sober. That's the problem. No, I know. Well, that's not going to last. Um, we're running long. We're going to have you back. Uh, Steve Hayward and I want to do a sort of adv- pure advice for young people show, um, sort of based on the curmudgeon guide kind of thing. You got and- three microphones? Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll okay. just we'll just do uh, the three of us sort of. We may be, we may even get a studio audience of young people like Jack Butler here, and and we can just lay out their life for them. Um, but that's in a future episode. Um, I ask this question of almost every first time guest, and make it sound like I've been doing a lot of this. This is like the twelfth episode or something like that. I always ask, what is the one thing about Washington or this life? Right, that you've led or that we live, um, this world that we're in. What is the one thing that either profoundly surprised you about it, or would profoundly surprise the average normal person um, who doesn't work and live in Washington or in think tanks or in magazines and that kind of thing about Washington? And I'll give to help you out. Um, you've all Evan, which a lot of people have. Uh, you know, uh, associated themselves with his answer, said that the most shocking thing about working in Washington is how quickly you discover nobody knows what they're doing. And what he meant by that was that people have these grandiose plans about rolling out a policy initiative or passing a law or getting a, a messaging strategy across. And then it's the old adage about no plan survives contact with the enemy. And it turns out that it's just pushing a noodle across the carpet and Everyone is just doing their best and that nothing is, you know, I I find this sort of a very reassuring thing about our democracy is that one of the things I've discovered related to Yuval's point is that nobody's in charge. And I mean that in the most positive way possible. I remember going, I talked about this one, I think with Ben Sass on here. I remember going to the big Koch Brothers donor conference thing, you know, at the time when the New York Times was telling me that this was the star chamber that ran everything in America, right? And then you get there, and I'm not revealing any off-the-record stuff, and you get there and you meet these incredibly rich people who are all talking about, if only we could get to the people in power, um, you know, and if only we could get around the consultants, the political consultants, we could really get some things done. But if you talk to political consultants, they're always like, if only I could get around the donors. And if you talk to the politicians, if only we could get better treatment in the media. And you, almost everywhere you look, 
you go to World AI's World Forum. It was one of the most impressive gatherings of, of serious people that's, that's held. And everyone is sort of like, who's running things? And it turns out no one is. And that's a sign that we actually live in a free country still. But other people have talked about how, like, you know, Steve Hayes talks about how this idea that people who are critical of Trump or or, or don't follow the sort of talk radio party line, they're just doing it to go to Georgetown cocktail party. Well, this is what I wanted to pick up on. Yeah. Because my answer is what would surprise people, let's say, about my life right. uh, insofar as listeners know I've been at a think tank. Uh, I've been at AEI for 27 years and I've been enmeshed in public policy analysis and so forth. And to me, the interesting thing is how segregated the worlds are. Mm-hmm. I do not have a single politician as a person I socialize with mm-hmm. uh, and accept at uh, professional events. Uh, no friends among politicians. Uh, <clears throat> and I've Never been to a Georgetown dinner party, uh, the the because that's a different circle from right. the ones that you and I run in, and so I've been living a life of Washington public policy, but I am extremely isolated from where the sausage is made, mm-hmm. and I think there are lots of those different kinds of islands within Washington, which have very little contact. So. You know the what's the old uh, joke that Truman had? If you want to, if you're in Washington, you want a friend, buy a dog. Right. Uh, my experience, because in the world of Capitol Hill, you have lots of backstabbing. Yeah. You have lo- I've lived a life in which backstabbing has just not been an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm surrounded by friends who I respect and like, and we have a great time, and nobody's uh, jockeying for power and and. And it's completely different from the Washington right. that uh, that is only a couple of miles away from us. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. And <coughs> on the episode that I did this with Steve Hayward and we said, hey, wouldn't it be fun to do an advice thing? One of the pieces of advice I did talk about was telling people like Jack Butler uh, here um, that if they want to go to the Hill, they should do it for a little while and then get the hell out of there because that place – is so big and has such scale and is so much like a giant college campus. It's very seductive and you can get lost in there and then you've, you've, you go native and you don't know anything else other than that ecosystem. Um, uh, I know we're running long. Just a uh, quick epi- uh, add-on to that. <clears throat> I once went to brief the Republican staff on a welfare issue back in the 1980s and with me was the guy who later became head of Brookings Institution, whose name I am now blocking on. Stro- but he was Strobe Talbot? No. No, before him. Uh, but anyway, the um, so this was a guy who was definitely on the left, and I'm definitely on the right. And by the end of that briefing, we were both looking at each other because these staffers, Hill staffers, were absolutely ignorant yeah. about what had been done. They're thinking in terms of, well, can we get the votes for this or that and the other thing? There was no substance there. Mm-hmm. There was ignorance. And so we were we ended up not each trying to make our own separate points. We ended up trying to educate these people yeah. com- in common as to, do you understand what the story is here? So in addition to what you said about the Hill, there's a lot of astonishing ignorance among the people who craft our laws. Yeah. No one knows what they're doing. No one knows what they're doing, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Charles, thank you so much uh, for being on, and congratulations on your emeritus status. And 
when your next book comes out and I have to ritualistically denounce you and anathematize you. Uh, nothing personal, right? Nothing personal. I just, you know, I want to be on record that I've never met you before and um, um, and I disassociate myself entirely with you. But other than that, it's been great to have We'll you. still be great friends. Yes, I hope so. I regret to announce this is the end. I'm going now. I bid you all a very fond farewell. Okay, uh, Charles Murray has left the building, and uh, uh, Jack, what would you think of the uh, conversation? Uh, I am, once again, I mean, I don't want to make myself seem like I don't know anything, but all of these guests that you have on just seem to have such intimidating amounts of knowledge. They're, they're really humbling. Yeah, I mean, but they're exceptional. I mean, we had Steve Hayes on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but he, he knows a lot about chicken wings. He does, he does, and, um, and he's got really important hair. <laughs> so there's that, but no, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is because I I think the state of normal conservative commentary, you know, on cable and talk radio has been degenerating for a while. I mean, there's there's some islands of quality out there to be sure, but I think people are kind of hungry for chicken wings. A chicken wings because that's that's true always, and B for sort of a little more seriousness. Do you think there there's another wave of conservative conservative intellectuals to the rescue, or are you really worried about that? In what sense? I mean, but, I, I, well, so Charles on Monday night talked about you know worrying that his comrades now are going to be more feel more alone than he felt when he was doing his work. Like, do we have? More people like Charles, like yourself, coming, you know, coming up. I, I to be honest, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, uh, for listeners who are doing quite pick on up, you know, so Charles gave this big speech or talk here at AEI uh, Monday night to announce his sort of retirement and emeritus status, and he did sort of a lessons of his life talk. It was pretty. Um, it was. Charming is the wrong word, but it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a mixture of really sort of brilliant insights mm-hmm. and some nostalgia. And it was mm-hmm. really, I, I thought, I, I, everyone I talked to got a lot out of it. It reminded me really, really intensely of Bilbo's retirement or, yeah, I guess retirement Birthday speech. speech. Birthday yeah. speech, yeah, in <laughs> The Fellowship of the Ring. And I was yeah. just waiting to see Charles, like, fumble something with something in his pocket and slip the one ring on his fingers and disappear. But he yeah. didn't. Or, or take out a martini tumbler and vanish. But, um, <laughs> some, some equivalent, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so two things I want to say about the Charles thing. Uh, one, I'll answer your question in a second. But two, look, I know, I've been at a, I was at AEI when the bell curve came out. I know Charles is hugely controversial. I know that people are desperate to make him into a demon figure Mm-hmm. Um, and this crazy racist guy and all of that. And I got to say, look, I have my disagreements with Charles about some things, and I certainly am less interested in some of the stuff that he's fascinated by. But Charles is one of the singularly most decent, gentlemanly yeah. people I've ever met in my entire life. And um, in, in, in real life, the guy is a mensch, and he's incredibly dignified guy. And I... You know, and one I, I and I've said this in speeches for years. One of the inspirations for sort of doing liberal fascism, uh, my first book, was that when I was here at AEI, I remember coming home one night after the bell curve had come out, and 
a local DC news station was promoing the night's broadcast, and they were showing uh, stock footage from Nuremberg rallies in Nazi Germany, and they were saying, and they were teasing, a new book comes out that raises, you know, the specter of blah 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 blah. And the thing is, you know, look, I knew I knew Charles pretty well. We weren't friends then. He was a big deal, and I was a you know guy who played ping pong a lot. Yeah, but you, you were a me back then. I was I was a you. I mean, I was I wasn't. <laughs> quite at your coprophagic phylum but it was you know i was that was down the food chain and and he was always a very kind man to me and um but he was a soaked to the bone libertarian who honestly didn't believe that the government was qualified to collect your garbage and the idea that he <laughs> yeah. wanted to put people in camps was just so outrageous and and that was that was one of the sort of formative experiences for me to want to sort of tackle the sort of misunderstanding of fascism in terms of you know the the question are there Younger people to the rescue. I don't know. You know, I mean, when we had Steve Hayward on, he talked for a while about how the grad schools aren't doing a great job of producing yeah. young conservatives or being attractive to young conservatives and libertarians. And Charles ended his speech with a sort of shout out to essentially this podcast talking about the remnant, which is this yeah. idea that comes from Albert J. Nock and originally comes from the Bible, you know. And, and I think, you know, and so Charles was pretty pessimistic about the climate that conservative you know policy analysts and and public intellectuals are going to be in for a while and I am too that's one of the reasons why I decided to yeah. do this podcast and but on the flip side you know so in the conversation we have with Charles you know Charles said you know that he's and I pushed back and made it more depressing but he has this case for optimism where he says in 200 years you know these ideas are going to be borne out and when I'm in a good mood which is rare these days um, I'll often make a similar point you know the the I used to say when Obama was in his first term and it looked like things were going to go way left in this country, you know, that conservatives need to have the courage of their convictions a little bit. If you actually believe that socialized medicine won't work, if you actually believe that status policies won't work, then you have to agree with Edmund Burke who says, example is the school of mankind and he will learn it no other, which mm -hmm. means that sometimes you just have to show people things don't work, not tell them, and, and have confidence that your ideas will be proven right over time. Um, and I generally believe that. But at the same time, you can go a really long time making stupid mistakes. I mean, I just saw this morning on Twitter the Socialist Party of Britain was blaming the failures of socialized medicine on Britain on the fact that capitalism is outdated. If that kind of stu <laughs> stupidity won't die, you know, I mean, you got to yeah. – yeah, vigilance is required. So I don't know. Well, and for those who are interested, Charles Murray's talk is on the AI website right. for Monday night. And it's also available as a podcast. So if, so if you search AI events podcast, uh, it's the latest episode up there if people want to listen to it. I'll try to persuade the Remnant Twitter account to tweet that out. You think you have that kind of that kind of pull with those guys? Uh, I don't know. Again, it's, it's an autonomous it's, uh, entity. Meta the, question. I can't. It's, not under, it's beyond my control, as I keep saying. All right. So this raises another... You know, you know, as as Winston Churchill said to FDR when his bathrobe accidentally fell off and he was standing naked in front of FDR, he said, uh, "Mr. President, the Prime Minister of England has nothing to hide from the President of the United States." Uh, <laughs> similarly, we have nothing to hide from our listeners, and so as I mentioned with Jack on a previous episode, uh, I first of all I want this podcast to get weirder. You know, I want people to be sort of surprised by what they find here and and part of the idea. And so here, here's the dilemma. We also kind of want a little bit more of a cult following for this thing. 
But the most deadly thing you can do in pursuit mm. of a cult following is say, I would like to have a cult following. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like, I, it's, like it, it's, the, it's the equivalent in marketing of saying, I would like to be sexy. You know? <laughs> um, it's, like, it's like the least sexy thing you can say. You know? Yeah. Almost the better thing to do, if you look at history, uh, if you want to inspire a religious movement, is to suppress an incipient religious movement, drive it underground, and then make make the followers incredibly committed so that they have this zeal to them that inspires them eventually to just play this long game and seize the levers of power in yeah, some but, way. Yeah, but the, the – pro- okay, so I, I, I've heard this theory from you before, <laughs> Butler, and the, <laughs> the problem with it is that I can't be the one oppressing them. I can't yeah. be the one cashing out. We, we would need the cooperation of some willful – Someone willing and eager to play the role of villain. I mean, obviously, like someone like Sonny Bunch, right? You know, I mean, Sonny Bunch, who is in favor of the Night King in Game of Thrones. Wow. And is on the side of Darth Vader in the Star Wars universe and and has all, we forget all his other bad opinions. Oh, and is in favor of genocide, too. So there's that. Uh, Fictional. So he says. Um, I'll give him that. It's fictional. Wait, although, to be fair, the, the, the musical Wicked. Did suggest that there could be more to villains in these stories than the meets the eye. So, is that are we going to get a like Vader? Uh, I, I will, I will tell you right now, <laughs> as Jack can attest, as someone who spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about romanticism for this book I got coming out, the idea that villains could be heroic does not begin with the <laughs> lavish Broadway musical Wicked. <laughs> um, On the other hand, the the grain of truth in what he's saying is that. I mean, the, the true test of a of a fictional universe or of a, of a creation of that nature is how you can like the story that is ultimately told in the narrative that we get is only one like slice of the many stories that can be told in that universe. Like Lord of the Rings is really great about this of just showing like hints of these things that happened centuries ago. Right. Like, what the heck was that? Oh, well, we're just walking by it now. Right. Uh, that's that must have been really cool. But we got to focus on destroying the ring. Yeah, no, I, I get that. But my, my only point about suppressing the – and, of course, I get distracted about Sonny Bunch because he's so terrible. But um, my only point about creating a cult-like following by suppressing it is right. But I, if we want it to be about this podcast, I can't – We need an oppressor. I can't be the persecutor yeah. and oppressor of these people. It's sort of like in the um, – one of the most common expressions on the um, – Shtetl and Tsarist Russia by the Jews was all, when they were being beaten up by the Cossacks and everybody else was if only the Tsar knew, right? <laughs> and so I need to be the Tsar yeah. who, of course, if I knew about this persecution, I would come rushing in. So anyway, but this is a long-term project. You know, I don't think any, you know, you know, as with the G file, it takes a while to sort of develop a voice, and and we're still trying to figure this out. Yeah, well, this is a pretty young podcast. It is a young podcast. It's like four months old, I think. I think the last week of September is when it started. Is that right? The first week of of October in 2017. So yeah, so it's as I keep saying, it's a work in progress, and but I do think a good first step in this process is figuring out some sort of tagline thing uh to, to close the show with but when i was looking around internet uh, <laughs> well that was your first mistake <laughs> yeah no i know well, so, so actually this is a funny story because we in the conversation with charles i brought up judge bork who used to be you know when he was alive he was at aei and 
he was an endlessly entertaining guy in the driest way possible. And, I mean, you would sort of need a Fremen still suit to really appreciate the dryness of <laughs> Whoa. Uh, Deep cut Dune reference right like, there. I like that. And uh, he, uh, you know, so he wrote this book called Slouching Towards Gomorrah, all about how pop culture is ruining the society and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I was part of the sort of research assistant guild back then. And so I knew his research assistant. I was friends with his research assistants. And taking nothing away from Judge Bork, the guy knew nothing about popular culture. Right? I mean, he had to get a binder. Here is your popular culture, you know. The binder's uh, full of pop culture. Yeah. I mean, yes. Knew a lot about antitrust. Yeah, right. Knew a lot about the First Amendment and Oliver Wendell Holmes and all that. But he had to get up to speed on it, right? Yeah. And, I mean, that's what uh, his, his library records were became public like that was a controversy right during the confirmation they that was the beginning that was you know the dawn of borking um which is now a you know the politics of personal destruction and all that begins with bork and during his confirmation hearings you know where he ultimately got rejected they went and they got his video store rental record that's right yeah and they were hoping to find all sorts of like porn and you know and women's prison movies and other classics and Bigfoot erotica instead it was just like one you know like Fred Astaire movie yeah it was like Hitchcock I I I tried I was really curious about this and I tried to track down like a Washingtonian article reporting what he was in what movies he had watched recently but I I just couldn't find it I was really curious to see what he was watching but I yeah so that's out there but anyway so when I was a producer for this tv show called Think Tank we had Judge Bork on and he was there to talk about his book, and at one point, Ben, uh, the host, Ben Wattenberg, asked him some question, like, how do you know that, or what are you talking about, whatever, and and Bork says, well, of course, I haven't heard this music myself, but I am told that on internet, <laughs> you can blah, 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 and so for the next, like, 10 years, me and my buddies, whenever we would, we'd always leave out the the uh, yeah. in internet, and we're like... I must go to internet. <laughs> um, and I know I, I really liked Judge Bork a lot, and I respected him a lot. I don't want to make too much fun of him, but he was he was not he didn't have his finger on the pulse of gangster rap. You know, he was writing about. <laughs> Are you really? I'm shocked. Yeah. So anyway, I went on internet to look for possible catchphrases and problems. A lot of them are the kind of thing you should would say at the beginning of a show. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and. I then, of course, got sucked into looking at comic book stuff. And so some of my so – I'm actually going to – I'm going to test you guys, okay? Oh, boy. I'll start with the easiest one there is. Okay. I am the vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman. <laughs> Are you asking who said that? Yeah, okay. So that one's a given. You know, that's like getting your name right. Oh, uh, I think that was Moon Knight. <laughs> Funny thing about Moon Knight. No, we'll leave that going. Let one go. This is not the substandard. We're not <laughs> okay. talking about Moon Knight. Um, it's clobbering time. That's uh, the thing. Okay. Careful with the homophobic jokes. Flame on. Oh, that human <laughs> torch. I thought careful with the homophobic jokes was going to be the catchphrase. Which would be uh, that, that's actually kind of a great catchphrase. <laughs> careful with the homophobic jokes. Um, okay. Uh, this is one I actually kind of had to look up. Um, and I'm thinking about getting this tattooed somewhere. With blood and rage of crimson, crimson red, ripped from a corpse so freshly dead, together with our hellish hate, we'll burn you all. That is your fate. Hmm. That doesn't sound like a hero saying. It sounds more like a villain uh, and a group of villains at that. As Pratt was saying, sometimes there's a plus side to these villains. You know, <laughs> who knows? Uh, is it the Hellfire Club? Uh, no, but that's not a bad guess. 
it is the Crimson or the Red Lantern League, the Crimson Lantern League. Oh, the which from is some DC thing. So yeah, I, there's like different kinds of different color rings, and they like have different inflections of good and evil depending yeah. on the color. It sounded really stupid, but okay. Spoon. <laughs> what? Uh, oh man, You're... is this a Reed Richards kid? Is like no, the, oh, okay, no, it's the tick. Oh. oh, the tick is fantastic. What? Is, I'm not even going to ask the context. Of that's that. his. That's his running right. Spoon. Uh, have you watched is, the new Amazon tick? I, I have. It's okay. Yeah. It's, it's just okay. Yeah. But the cartoon was actually better. Um, that's where I got the phrase. Jarts, boring, losing <laughs> consciousness. Yeah, we um, we ex- excerpted he, that in the Lincecombe yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, by the hoary hosts of Hogarth. Oh, that's a Doctor Strange. Okay. By Crom. Uh, that's Conan. There you go. Okay. Yeah, he <coughs> prays to Crom and Conan the Barbarian. And there's also Imperious Rex, which was Prince Namor. And then there are the, the famous sign-offs from, like, network television and news anchors and stuff. There was Good Night and Good Luck. Edward R. Murrow. See You on the Radio. What? CBS's that... Charles Osgood. Oh. Good Night Chet. Which you think would be from Weird Science, but then it was followed up by Good Night David from Hunt, Huntley and uh, Brinkley when they did the Huntley Brinkley Report, which was the prequel to the uh, This Week with David Brinkley, which is now This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Oh no, and there was a Gronsky and Company somewhere in the middle there. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're old. Yeah, <laughs> and so it goes. That's um, Cronkite, right? No, you were incorrect. Oh, it was popular. Uh, it was created by a guy named uh, Lloyd Dobbins, but Linda Ellerby who was really tiresome, um, popularized it when she took over the, the NBC late-night news show. See, this will betray my age. I only know about Linda Ellerby from the, like, Nickelodeon had this from news the Linda, channel for From kids. the Linda Ellerby erotica? <laughs> no. <laughs> I hope that doesn't exist. <laughs> um, no, I remember she did a morning, Saturday morning, kind of like a little news thing. Uh, for I don't know if it was Saturday morning, but it was on Nickelodeon. It was, like, news... For specifically kids. for kids. Yeah. 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 That's all I, I had no idea who she was. And that's the way it is? That's Cronkite. Yes. And I've always hated that phrase. Um, it's an it, epistemological statement. That's right. It was always, <laughs> it was a, the the hubris involved in saying that, you know, it's, it's it, it was the video, it was the TV equivalent of the New York Times saying all the news that's fit to print, right? But it went one step further because it was basically went to a Rawlsian original position and said, yeah. this is the ontological, epistemological state <laughs> of the universe, and we are authoritative about it. Anyway, and that's part of our world? Uh, the Little Mermaid? Close. So <laughs> Dan Rather, right, who always had Cronkite envy. <sighs> um, Terrible affliction. Yeah, this was long before he climbed the jackass tree and then hit every branch on the way down. Wait, wait, so I have so many friends in their late 20s and early 30s who love Dan Rather on Facebook. What? I hear that. Yeah, it, no, he's become a thing. Yeah, it's yeah. You like it's George so, Takai now. Yeah, it's oh, it's very gosh. it's bizarre. And and the crazy thing is most of them don't even know that he was fired from CBS News. So strange. You mean that George Bush fired him? Yes, right. Yeah, sorry. CBS yeah, my bad. And so when Dan Rather took over the CBS Evening News, he wanted to have his own catchphrase. And he tried Courage, <laughs> um, word. and then he yeah well, that was his like sort of famous one, and then he tried Cora Hay, 
which is Spanish for courage. <laughs> and so then he ultimately just went with, and that's part of our world, which is pretty freaking lame. It's at least more modest than Cronkite's assertion about reality. <laughs> True. And then you have Hugh Downs uh, with, we're in touch, so you be in touch, which I hate. And then... Do they want people to call? Is that what that's saying? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. That's a good question. And then there was Tim Russert's, if it's Sunday, it's meet the press, which I don't think works for yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, It's a little iffy. But so here, so here are some ideas I had. That's going to leave a mark. <laughs> um, Carthage must be destroyed. Or my, f- my dad's favorite Russian proverb, which was, and remember, if you see a Bulgarian in the street, beat him. He will know why. <laughs> <laughs> what? And then you gave me, Jack, you gave me a few from, from readers of the Remnant Twitter feed and, or emailers to the Remnant podcast Gmail thing. Uh-huh. Have a Smurfy day. No. Remember, listeners, eagles may soar, but weasels don't get sucked into jet engines. Unless the jet is on the ground and the engine is still going. That's, that happens in the first episode of Lost. A guy gets sucked into the jet engine. Keep hope alive is perfectly fine, someone says, which I've been saying for years, ironically. People don't know. I got it from Jesse Jackson at this point. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Four legs good, two legs bad. And then, no, then someone just wants me to make various Bill Clinton sex jokes. <laughs> I had on Twitter, we got a huge bunch. You- yeah, I have. I found a couple that uh, folks responding to. Uh, my favorite one, because I'm you know more of a sports guy than a comic book guy, was Dilly Dilly, which is from all these annoying Bud Light commercials. Uh, in ten years, Dilly Dilly will be the will be, <laughs> was up. Yeah, it'll just be this vaguely remembered thing that beer commercials uh, inserted into our public consciousness. Then there was. Um, now I got to go walk the dog. Yeah, which I actually think kind of works. Yeah, that, that, yeah, I think that works pretty well. Yeah, I was also thinking there are a couple that referenced the the pants joke, and that could, it could be all right. I got got to go buy some pants or something like that. Mm. If you know, I don't know if we want to keep that alive longer than it is. And then um, the final one, which I'm trying to find here, was someone went to the Book of Jonah, uh-huh. which oh. was uh, which I thought was a nice meta touch that's classic and found i'm so angry i wish i were dead (laughs) (laughs) that's right he does say that um all right so some other people have recommended that the pinned tweet on my twitter account which needs to change at some point um is nothing will change um (laughs) i could say that but Uh, if you change it then it will be disproven there's the uh um, line from hill street blues let's be careful out there i kind of like uh, and Jack, you're going to have to work the bleep button when this airs. The Ron Burgundy, uh, go f- yourself, San Diego. Um, <laughs> or conversely, we could go stay classy, San Diego, and like just assume that all our listeners live in San Diego. Uh, we don't know that they don't all live in San Diego. <laughs> it's, it's possible. And uh, anyway, so we're going to keep working on this. I mean, one thought I had was, as, as longtime Twitter followers know, for years, whenever I was on a plane and they closed the doors before takeoff, I would always make a joke about how it reminded me of the scene in Empire Strikes Back where the the blast doors close on Hoth and then Chewbacca gives this horrible plaintive moan because he thinks Han Solo and Luke are going to die out there and I always have the hashtag Wookie Hoth moan and we could actually just do an audio sign off where we play that. But Or I've heard you... Uh... Do your own Wookiee Hoth moan. I have, but we're going to save that. Um, <laughs> okay. you know, well, I did it in episode 11, but, you know. Yeah. That's right, you did. Oh, um, man, I'm still, 
I mean, it was so authentic that I you were still working through the Disney lawsuit about that. It, it was a wild ride. All right, so we're going crazy long here. We'll save commentary for for for. Uh, we'll save the really grotesque and unseemly schadenfreudtastic gloating about Steve Bannon's fate for a later podcast. Um, I think we're going to have Kirsten Solstice Anderson on next week, so that's a good opportunity to do some more rank punditry. And uh, whoa, whoa, she's a pollster. I know, but I mean, like, <laughs> I get it. So rank pollstery, cephology, <laughs> yeah, like, um, if you prefer. Yeah, yeah. Oh yes, haruspixing, augury, augury. Yeah, yeah that's a better go. one. And so, uh, until next time, uh, insert Wookie Hoff moan here. <laughs>